So I hope I'm going to be able to practice what I'm preaching. Uh, I hope this will seem moderately coherent. Um, I also hope that what happens to me this time isn't what happened to me the last time I tried to use my iPad to read a talk, which was at a commencement address at the Occidental College, where about halfway through the, the iPad said to me, Overheating, please close down. <laughs> uh, but the sun isn't actually shining on this iPad, so I'm hoping it's all right. And I'm going to be old fashioned and read. Um, coherence is an obvious, and I want to thank everybody who was involved in inviting us for inviting us. I've enjoyed uh, what we've heard so far, and, um, and as you'll see, some of it's sort of relevant to what I want to say. So, coherence is an obvious virtue for a person's beliefs. You might think that entails that you should only have beliefs that can, as a matter of logic, all be true together. That would be plausible enough if to believe something was to believe it with certainty. But most of our beliefs are not certain. Beliefs, so it seems, come by degrees. And a short argument will get you from there to the conclusion that logical consistency is not a reasonable aim. I begin with the thought, common to many theorists in philosophy and social sciences nowadays, that if there's a measure of degrees of belief, it should ideally have the shape of a probability function, and since it's useful to have a name for degrees of belief, I'll follow convention in calling them credences. Using this language, we can say that credences should conform to the laws of probability. This granted, the lottery paradox shows that rational people will treat each ticket in a large enough lottery as though they were close to sure it won't win, but they shouldn't, as a result, behave as if they were sure that there won't be a willing ticket, and now they've got a collection of uh, beliefs, not all of which can be true. A plausible coherentism has to take account of complexities like these. And for this reason, while I think it's obvious that the truth can't be inconsistent, there can't be an inconsistent conjunction of sentences that taken together provide a correct description of some state of the world, I think it's equally obvious that the picture of the world we actually live by cannot consist of a set of representations, all of which could be true together. And that is because I don't think that most of the elements of our picture of the world could be things we have reason to be sure of. When Frank Ramsey and Bruno de Finetti invented the modern way of measuring subjective probabilities, they connected degrees of belief to behavior by way of betting. In the more general treatment of the matter in von Neumann and Morgenstern, the idea of maximizing expected utility effectively treats every action as a sort of bet. And the resultant picture allows a definition of coherence of the release system, not in terms of whether all of its members can be true together, but rather in terms of whether the assignments of credences to its members conforms to the calculus of probability. This is a very demanding notion. Confirming the logical consistency of a large set of beliefs is hard enough. Confirming the probabilistic consistency of the degrees of the same large set of beliefs looks even harder. For one thing, you have to know the logical relations in order to calculate the permitted degrees of belief. That looks like doing the second thing presupposes being able to do the first thing. And once you look at it in detail, it seems fantastically unlikely that a creature whose beliefs were actually embodied in the physical system could maintain this kind of probabilistic consistency over a large set of beliefs. Indeed, since maintaining consistency involves doing something, namely the mental act of reflecting, the question what the expected utility is of maintaining consistency naturally arises. But it can't even be considered in this framework for a creature whose degrees of belief are not probabilistically coherent because the preferences of such a creature are not transitive 
And so we cannot use the counterfactual patterns of its choices to define its credences and its utilities. This is a reflection of a general difficulty about the picture. Either a creature's behavior satisfies the conditions for applying the model to it, or it doesn't. If it does, its credences and preferences can be coherent, but there isn't an obvious way to specify what it is for a creature's states to be more or less coherent. They will either be coherent or not incoherent. We could aim for coherence in various ways, but moving towards coherence without getting there is just moving from one kind of incoherence to another. You could say that a movement is an improvement if it's further along some route to full coherence, but I don't know how to identify the routes, and since there are likely to be many, this won't produce a single ordinal ranking of states anyway, so coherence won't, generally speaking, be a matter of more and less, as I said. These issues have to do with shaping a coherent set of beliefs in the first place. Responding to new evidence by changing beliefs is usually modelled on this picture by a Bayesian process of conditionalization. Given coherent evidence and a coherent initial credence function, there's a unique, best, new, coherent assignment of credences. But if your initial credences are not coherent, the Bayesian picture won't work to get you, uh, from a, uh, to get you a new coherent credence function. In the sphere of normative belief, the credence picture faces other problems. Suppose I believe that you ought not to hit me. I do. Is this a belief that can be fitted into the sort of framework I've been sketching? Does it relate to action in the sort of way that the belief that you will hit me relates to action? If not, then the apparatus for assigning degrees of belief this application of the standard decision theory assumes will probably not work. Begin by thinking of it in the simplest Ramsey and Definetti style way. To make sense of setting odds for a bet on the proposition that you ought not to hit me, we have to have some procedure for settling the bet. Empirical confirmation and disconfirmation that you have hit me is the sort of thing that I know how to make sense of. So we can await the empirical confirmation and take the better settled one way if it comes and another if we get empirical disconfirmation. In this case, we can usually expect to get one or the other. But how would this work for the proposition that you should not hit me? At what point is the evidence in? I have to know this in order to understand what I'm agreeing to when I accept betting odds. Otherwise, I literally don't know what I'm committing myself to in making the bet. This is a second, there is a second problem, which persists even if you don't use bets to define credences. It's more general. Isn't the behavior that demonstrates that I think you ought not to hit me more like the behavior that demonstrates I want you not to hit me than like the behavior that demonstrates that I believe that you won't hit me? In fact, aren't normative beliefs, from the point of view of their relation to behavior, more like appetites or feelings or desires? Jenny Dryer, just to pick a random person, refers to, quote, a widely recognized feature of moral judgments I will call internalism. There is an internal or logical connection between sincerely asserting a sentence of the form X is morally good and being motivated to promote or perform X. What is widely recognized in philosophy is usually also much disputed, and this is an old dispute. But the key point is that while motivations or desires also have conditions of rational coherence, which connect, or basically, with the coherence of our preferences, their coherence conditions are almost certainly different from those of our beliefs, as conceived in the picture I began with. To treat normative beliefs realistically, or quasi-realistically, entails supposing that they meet many or all the conditions of logical coherence that non-normative beliefs do, 
And if the notion of degree of belief applies to them, they will have to meet the same conditions of probabilistic coherence. But the non von Neumann-Morgenstern method of connecting degrees of belief to preferences won't work for normative beliefs if their relationship to preferences is different from the one that obtains for non-normative beliefs. So here too we face familiar, familiar meta-ethical territory. Can I count as sincerely holding that an act is right if that belief doesn't lead me to prefer states of the world in which you and I do not perform it? If not, then holding something right is not in the relevant way like believing it to be white. Given motivational internalism of Dreyer's sort, you might seek a kind of coherence in normative beliefs, analogous to, though different from, the one we seek for non-normative ones. Just as the utility maximization of counter-credences presupposes the thought that you can't reasonably act as if P and as if not P at the same time, we could say that you can't rationally endorse the thought that you ought to do A and you ought not to do A, at least all things considered, because sincerity would require us to act as if you ought to do A, and you ought not to, and it's hard to see how you could pull that off. I think it's pretty clear what the main difficulty is in applying this way of uh, thinking about coherence among beliefs. It is wide, wildly idealized. An idealized picture of rationality is only practically useful if it helps you think about what to do in your actual non-ideal situation. Knowing how a creature with a perfectly coherent set of beliefs and well-behaved preferences should respond to a piece of evidence isn't much use to creatures like you and me whose preferences are badly behaved and whose beliefs are incoherent. Conditionalize on incoherent credences and you get more incoherent credences. It's hard to see why that should count as an improvement. Idealized theories of this sort may be correct, that is, without being useful. Perhaps this is a good account of the norms of reasoning appropriate for a computationally perfect creature. But they are practically useful only, as I said, if they help us to think about how we computationally imperfect creatures should behave. In recent work on the evolutionary psychology of heuristics, we have a model of how that can happen. The idealized model helps to characterize what it would be for us to be successful in pursuing our goals the heuristic can then be shown to be a strategy that has a high probability of being successful when adopted by creatures like us with our cognitive and informational limitations in the sort of circumstances that we're likely to be in, given, that is, our unreliability in computation, our small memory, and our distractibility. But neither logic nor probability theory is very helpful by itself in dealing with our actual cognitive situation. Both help you identify problems. If I have P and not P in my belief set, I should do something about it. If I have CP and C not P, both greater than, where there's a credence is, greater than a half, I should do something about that too. But knowing that I have to do something isn't very helpful. <coughs> what would be helpful would be knowing what to do. I'm going to ask how we should think about the coherence of our beliefs about the moral psychology of individuals on the one hand, with our beliefs about their normative situation on the other. Rigorously to explore these questions would require answers to some of the issues I've been raising. Since our beliefs about experimental moral psychology are seriously in flux, if anyone doubted that at 9am, they surely don't doubt it now, it would require exactly the notion of greater coherence we don't have rather than the available notion of full coherence. And I confess, I don't have strong views on how to do any of this. 
So I'm going to proceed with the assumption that it makes sense to speak of making our views more coherent, even though I don't know exactly how to make sense of it. Other small, over small sets of beliefs, though, we can say this much. Logical consistency is something we can seek and find, and it's worth having because, as I said, it will constrain the patterns among our, our small-scale patterns among our credences. John Rawls proposed that we should bring our moral beliefs into coherence, as you know, by seeking, as has been mentioned several times today, what he called reflective equilibrium between different levels of belief. He, he put it like this. Uh, this is from the Independence of Moral Theory. People have considered judgments at all levels of generality, from those about particular situations and institutions up through broad standards and first principles, to formal and abstract conditions on moral conceptions. One tries to see how people would fit their various convictions into one coherent scheme, each considered judgment, whatever its level, having a certain initial credibility. By dropping and revising some, by reformulating and expanding others, one supposes that a systematic organization can be found. Although, in order to get started, various judgments are viewed as firm enough to be taken provisionally as fixed points, there are no judgments on any level of generality that are, in principle, immune to revision. Well, this sort of search for coherence is a method of reshaping beliefs that is very different from the Bayesian one. It's not a matter of how we should respond to new evidence. We ought to do something about incoherence if we discover it, prior, so to speak, to responding to new evidence. Of course, if our views are incoherent, we may have at some point to seek further evidence to choose among what are likely to be the many ways of resolving it. But if we could find coherence through this method at some point, we might be able thenceforward to apply the Bayesian method as new evidence rolled in. Rawls constrained the input to this process in two ways. First, he said we should seek equilibrium only among what he called, of course here, our considered judgments. This was a term of art for him, but its content doesn't need spelling out for our purposes here. It's a technical version. The second constraint was that we should aim for what he called a wide reflective equilibrium in which we seek a reconciliation of our views that, quote, would survive the rational consideration of all feasible moral conceptions and all reasonable arguments for them. Well, this might not seem to limit what we should take account of very much, uh, uh, but it doesn't explicitly call for an overall reconciliation of our moral views with our non-moral views, even if it seems obvious, once you think about it, that one obvious objection to a moral theory might be that it's inconsistent with some non-moral facts. Anyone who's read the theory of justice, however, will be aware that in practice, and especially when he was thinking about political philosophy, Rawls took non-moral facts about psychology and social science to be part, to be indeed part of what we needed to bring into the picture. And there are obvious non-controversial examples here. Everyone agrees, in fact, this principle was stated briskly by somebody earlier today, everyone agrees that some correct factual characterization of the situation is relevant to bringing our moral beliefs to bear on decisions. So the norm says, in circumstances C, you should do A. You need a factual characterization of a situation to decide whether the C obtain. But in a theory of justice, it looks as though Rawls brought factual considerations about the connection between well-being and self-respect, for example, into play in determining what our political norms should be. It's not obvious 
that this is simply an instance of applying normative ideas, characterized entirely independently of a factual understanding, to a factual characterization of a situation. Still, we can use Rawls's picture to locate the question I want to discuss today. Suppose, I'm tempted to say, suppose per impossibile, that we had reached wide reflective equilibrium across our moral views. Still, we would continue to learn new things about the non-moral world. When we learned new things, we would need to adjust our beliefs. And the question I want to ask is about a specific kind of adjustment of our moral beliefs in the light of such evidence. It will help to begin with a familiar sort of example, actually. It was an example that came up this morning. Suppose a psychologist, let us call him Libit, claims to have shown that some things people do are the outcome of forces uh, outside their conscious control. And suppose this is not the result of a general or metaphysical determinism. Indeed, Libet thinks that some acts are under our conscious control. Vetoing is a very silk, for example. Since our normal moral thinking requires us to... In what follows, I, I'm not concerned with whether any of this is true. I'm just trying to figure out what we should do, suppose it were true, how, how we should figure this into our moral thought. Um, since our normal moral thinking requires us to treat people as responsible for their acts, you might think only if they have control of them, coherence might lead us not to blame people when they do those things. But it might also lead us to abandon our normal moral thought. Maybe we should go on blaming people even for things that aren't under their control. Perhaps, for example, the practice of blaming is itself one of the things that shapes people's behavior, that's a plausible thought, and in the right direction. In any case, if there are things that are under our control, surely whether we will blame people, uh, that, sorry, if there are things that aren't under our control, surely whether we will blame people may be one of them. That is, it may not be under our control whether we feel the reactive attitudes that we do. And then it would be incoherent to hold ourselves responsible for blaming people on the grounds that one should not blame people whose actions are not under their control if blaming people is one of the actions that is not under a person's control. Now, all this goes much too fast, of course. Some questions one might have here are quite abstract and conceptual. What is it to have something under one's control? Is blaming an action in the relevant sense? And others are more concrete and empirical. What evidence is there that something that looks like an act is not under the agent's control? That is, do the lived experiments show what they purport to show? And what more particularly would show that blaming was an act of that sort? That is something that we don't have under our control. But the general shape of the problem here is this. Sometimes the only way to make our normative beliefs consistent with empirical claims is to revise the normative beliefs. Now, where the relevant empirical claims are psychological, we have the choice between revising general principles Blame is appropriate only for acts under the agent's control, or particular practices, holding people responsible for their actions. But it doesn't look like we can rationally reject the empirical claim because it is inconsistent with our normative beliefs. <coughs> Let's say that an empirical proposition in psychology, say, E, undermines a set of normative beliefs, N, if N is coherent, uh, only if not E. And let me offer for consideration a first principle constraint on ways of keeping psychological claims 
and normative beliefs coherent when we acquire new psychological knowledge. I call it the principle of the irrelevance of morality to psychology. Um, unfortunately, it has the acronym PIMP, but there you are. Um, it seems like the best name for it, nevertheless. Perhaps we should call it IMP, forgetting that it's a principle. Uh, the fact that the set of our current moral beliefs is undermined by E, where E is some claim in empirical psychology, is not a rational ground for abandoning the belief that E. Uh, I, I say, I offer this for your consideration. I'm not, not making any arguments for it. I'm just asking you whether <coughs> this does seem like a plausible principle. Now, I should note in passing that we should have an explanation for imp if normative beliefs were, in fact, more like desires. <coughs> for we already think that the fact that a set of desires cannot be satisfied unless E gives us no good reason to abandon the belief that E. This is the point about the famous direction of, uh, difference in direction of fit, <coughs> beliefs on the one hand and desires on the other. I do not endorse this explanation. I point out only that it will occur to some. As I observed earlier, making coherent, unlike uh, Bayesian con con conditionalization, is not a matter of responding to new evidence. The irrelevance of morality to shaping the facts is thus not a doctrine about how we should adjust our views in response to new evidence, but about how we should get our views about empirical facts and our views about moral questions to fit together. It doesn't matter for these purposes whether E, the empirical fact we're considering, is something that we just learned or something that we have long known. Still, of course, if we had adjusted our moral beliefs to one another and to the facts, and we then acquired a new fact, that undermines the coherence of our moral beliefs, we would have to decide what to do about it. And this principle says that wherever we do, whatever we do, we shouldn't resolve the problem by refusing to accept the non-moral evidence. Now you might think that what's going on in these sorts of cases can be put like this. There are general normative principles that connect empirical states of affairs with normative uh, states of affairs or situations. Roughly they say, that a certain empirical condition is necessary or sufficient <coughs> for the obtaining of a normative situation. So their general form will be uh, N, some normative condition obtains if E, where E is some empirical condition, or uh, N only if E. What's going on in the sort of case I just described is that believing some N, because we believe both E and N if E, we then discover not E, thus losing our warrant for believing N. So let E be someone causes a harm that is under her conscious control, and let N be she has done something blameworthy. Currently, when Mary hits me, I infer that she has done something wrong because I presuppose the empirical claim that her hitting me is under her control. If psychology tells me it isn't, then the conditions that underwrote my judgment, that N, don't obtain, that E doesn't obtain. But as my earlier brief discussion already shows, this is not the only kind of case, but consider a different general normative principle, this time of the N only if E form. If someone has done blameworthy, then that act, something blameworthy, then that act was under her control. That's the claim I might abandon, I think, where I persuaded that people were rarely empirically in control of their actions. Blame could survive, that is, but a normative principle about blame could disappear and it would be as a result of acquiring a piece of non-normative psychological information. Notice now, however, that the psychological claims here 
uh, in the particular case, in, in the Libertad case, are about how people currently tend to operate. If we thought it was important to keep connections between blameworthiness and control, we might ask a different question. We might proceed in a different way by asking the question, could we change people in ways that would put them in control of more of their actions? That is one of the things that psychological situationists, social psychology, for example, reveals, is that we're, our behavior is sensitive to all sorts of things that we didn't know it was sensitive to and probably think it shouldn't be sensitive to. One response is to abandon the way we normally judge you. Another response is to say, well, can we use this information to think about how to put more things under our control? If it turns out to be the case that I am uh, nicer to people when there's a smell of croissants in the air, uh, which turns out to be true of most of us, um, I can think about, uh, I can be especially attentive to my behavior uh, when there aren't, when I'm aware that there's no smell of croissants around. I can think maybe I should be nicer than I'm disposed to be, or, or whatever. Or maybe I should just carry around a little spray that uh, gives me a, uh, some croissants every time anybody makes a, a smell of croissants every time somebody makes a request of me. So notice now, however, uh, sorry, I already noticed that. Of course, if your arguments against control were metaphysical or theological, this wouldn't be an option. But I was imagining arguments like limits for lack of control that begin with observations about some action, how some actions actually originate, and that suggest that some, but not all, are under our control. Psychological discoveries, however, might allow us to extend the range of actions under our control. They might do so either by giving people technologies of self-management they could learn, breathing techniques to manage anger at the simplest, on through more fancy things, or by allowing chemical or surgical interventions to reshape their psychologies, taking intranasal oxytocin, say, to increase empathy in anticipation of circumstances where empathy might be important. Now we would face a question. Should we just take people as they are and think of our moral norms as aimed at managing the behavior of humans as we are, or should we think of the norms as defining ideals of human life so that one of the options, if we have the technology, is to change people so that it's possible for them to live, sometimes at least, up to them? Psychological generalizations about people are among the truths we may have to bring into coherence with our general normative pictures in order to make our whole view more coherent. But psychological generalizations, unlike physical laws, may be among the things we can change. Neuroscience reveals mechanisms underlying psychological processes against a certain environmental background, including, of course, the specifications of features of the chemical environment in which the nervous system is embedded. Adjust the environment, including the internal environment, and the same nervous system will behave differently. Even if we don't know uh, how to achieve such changes at the moment, we could aim to develop lines of research that did make change possible, motivated in part exactly by normative reflection. You could start your normative reflection with the idea that there was a human nature and that morality addressed human beings with their natures and told them how they ought to try to behave. Or you could say uh, that human nature was itself one of the things that morality suggested we might act upon. Or you could say that the boundary between nature and artifice, in the case of self-fashioning creatures like us, is not a clear one. That would fit with a long tradition of normative reflection, going back at least to Aristotle, 
in which one of the aims of life should be to shape our individual natures according to certain ideals. Nietzsche has a famous passage in the gay science that expresses the thought very nicely. One thing is needful to give style to one's character, a great and rare art. It is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature and then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. Here, a large mass of second nature has been added. There, a piece of original nature has been removed, both times through long practice and daily work at it. That's the Protestant uh, thrust of this. Here, the ugly that could not be removed is concealed. There, it has been reinterpreted and made sublime. So, considered by way of example here, the debates about the relationship between virtue ethics as currently conceived, on the one hand, and recent work in character psychology. Uh, and those who draw on Aristotle's ideas are likely to stress, with uh, Rosalind Hursthaus, that character involves dispositions that are deep, stable, and enmeshed in yet other traits and dispositions. Honesty, she says, for example, is, quote, a disposition which is well entrenched in its possessor, something that, as we say, goes all the way down, and far from being a single-track disposition to do honest actions, uh, or even honest actions for certain reasons, it is multi-track. But the disposition is concerned with many other actions as well, with emotions and emotional reactions, choices, values, desires, perceptions, attitudes, interests, expectations, and sensibilities. To possess a virtue is to be a certain sort of person with a certain complex mindset. And then she gives the example of honesty, uh, uh, which exemplifies, I think, perfectly the kind of complexity she has in mind. An honest person's reasons and choices with respect to honest and dishonest actions reflect her views about honesty and truth, but of course such views manifest themselves with respect to other actions and to emotional reactions as well. Valuing honesty as she does, she chooses where possible to work with honest people, to have honest friends, to bring up her children to be honest. She approves of, dislikes, deplores, disapproves of, dislikes, deplores dishonesty, is not amused by certain tales of chicanery, despises or pities those who succeed by dishonest means rather than thinking that they've been clever, is unsurprised or pleased as appropriate when honesty triumphs, is shocked or distressed when those near and dear to her do what is dishonest and so on. Um, I don't know that that makes honesty sound terribly attractive, but anyway, that's what she says it is. Virtue ethicists also claim that having a virtue, which is something that comes by degrees, contributes to making one's life a good one. A life that exhibits the virtues is aoipso, a better life, not because the acts of the virtues have good consequences, though they may, and not because they lead to satisfaction or give pleasure to the agent, though Aristotle at least thought learning to take pleasure in what is virtues is one component of moral development. Virtues are intrinsically worth having. Being virtues is in itself part of what makes a life worthwhile. That's the one sketch of a certain virtue ethics picture. Now, situationists in psychology, on the other hand, think there's overwhelming evidence that people don't have such dispositions explanatory of their behavior. They also think that our tendency to explain other people's behavior in terms of traits of the agent, rather than features of our situation, is itself a psychological disposition. Indeed, it has, as you know, a disparaging name. It is called the fundamental attribution error by these people. As a result, the Aristotelian picture of ethics, in which a successful life entails the development of a virtuous character, is not, they argue, a picture of anyone you know. 
Now, it's not much of a defense of an account of virtue to insist that since it is an ideal, it is, of course, true that most people don't get anywhere near it. As I said earlier about the idealizations in the theory of credence, idealizations are useful only if they come with suggestions about how they can be used by creatures like us. If the psychology showed not just that we aren't honest in these ways, that we, that we couldn't be, it's hard to see what we should do with the recommendation that our lives would be better if we were honest. What, what use is that to someone who's... You can't be honest, but your life would be better if you could be. Perhaps I would be happier if I had a few million dollars more in investments than I do. Observing that does not help make me happy in my actual economic condition. But I don't see that the psychology does actually show that it's impossible to develop a more honest character. What it shows strictly is that developing Pestausian honesty would require the acquisition of many causally independent traits. Given the context sensitivity of the traits we are actually likely to develop, we will need to work on being honest with friends, honest with strangers, honest when angry, honest when cheerful, honest in the absence of the smell of croissants, and so on. Now, this looks hard to me, and that might make you wonder whether it really was worthwhile. However far in the direction of Herstausian honesty I were to move, there would, if the psychologists are right, be circumstances in which I wouldn't do the honest thing. That might lead you to think that perhaps the virtue ethicist had mistaken what made a life better. Perhaps it's not just having these dispositions, but acting on them that's important. And I might live a life in which I mostly did what was honest, in part because I lived in a world with fewer temptations to dishonesty. I could achieve what was worth achieving on this view by working to change my situation, adjusting my milieu to remove certain kinds of temptation. Wise Catholic priests know that private dinners are dirt with people you find attractive are a bad idea if you are committed to chastity. Being chaste, that is, may involve avoiding rather than resisting sexual temptation. Part of a good life, if you're married, is feeling and displaying fondness for your spouse. You could try to develop this character trait. Let us borrow a rarely used word from the OED and call it meritoriousness. In a New Yorker profile a few years ago, Paul Churchland is quoted describing his wife Patricia's arrival home one day from what he calls a frustrating faculty meeting. She said, Paul, don't speak to me. My serotonin levels have hit bottom. My brain is awash in picocorticoids. My blood vessels are full of adrenaline. And if it weren't for my endogenous opiates, I'd have driven the car into a tree on the way home. My dopamine levels are lifting. Pour me a Chardonnay and I'll be down in a minute. Now, Patricia Churchland's evident meritoriousness was evident here in her recognition that she was in a circumstance where displaying fondness required changing her milieu intérieur. <laughs> I've tried to make clear in a general and schematic way the many difficulties of method involved in trying to understand when we should agree that coherence requires us to abandon a normative claim in the face of a piece of new psychological knowledge. We can summarize the options this way. A psychological theorist discovery can give us reason to abandon a normative belief, though not if imp is right. 
the other way around. But a normative belief may give us reason to want to change ourselves into creatures about which the psychological or social scientific claim is no longer true. And because these claims are not natural laws, that's a possibility. That's a logical and it's an empirical possibility. So, psychological and social scientific realities are not simply a constraint on moral theorizing. They're among the things that moral theory may lead us to want to change. Psychology, neuroscience, and the social and biological sciences in general are continuing to teach us new things about how human beings work, alone and together. Our existing moral ideas are accompanied by existing pictures of human agency and often have presuppositions about the way it works. If we learn from new research that those presuppositions are wrong, that undermines our current moral ideas. I've proposed that we cannot respond to this by refusing to accept the new psychological research. But we should be clear about what the research actually shows. And often what it shows is not that people must work in a certain way, but just that they currently do. If the way a psychological discovery undermines our moral ideas is by suggesting that we cannot act in the way that morality requires, then given imp, so much the worse for morality. We must abandon some element of our existing moral ideas. But often, I suggest, it won't show that at all. And then we will have the option of deciding between altering our moral picture, on the one hand, and altering our psychological or social situation, on the other. Thank you. Go ahead and do the same questions with full hands or new questions and fingers are follow-ups. That's very interesting. Um, one thing you said, I just want to discuss a little bit about blame. So people sometimes talk about blaming as if it were an action, and it can be an action. But of course, it's a, when it's the distinctive action of blaming is one mistaken to express an attitude of blame. Crossonian reactive attitude. And then the question of whether uh, blame is subject to our control, I think it's, it's more like the question of whether belief is subject to our control. That is, both can respond to distinctive reasons, the right kind of reasons for the relevant attitude. But neither is such that you can just do it at will, try. Right? Of course, you can blame somebody at will, where that just means uh, scold them. Yeah. Right, but I, but I, I think a lot of times people don't keep sufficient track of this distinction between blaming as a kind of action. We talk about our practice of blaming, mm -hmm. and our, our practice typically involves actions of certain kinds. Yes. But the, of course, for it to be the relevant kind of action, it has to be taken to express the attitude, and, and the attitude will have this rather different relation to voluntariness. Good. I, I agree with all that. Um, but just to say that um, there's still, to, there, there are various possibilities about our reactive attitudes yeah. uh, as there are about our beliefs. Yeah. That is, they're configured in a particular way yeah. in relation to reasons. But that way is not always something that's not something we can do about. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I can turn myself into a person who's a worse reasoner in various ways, and, and then I'll end up with beliefs that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't done that. Uh, these beliefs 
will still strike me as a bit of a reason, but they'll be different from the ones they would have been if I hadn't adopted this. And the same is true, presumably, about the reactive attitudes yeah. of the plane. So we can still ask ourselves about those, yeah. those reactive attitudes. Is there, do the psychologists tell us anything about uh, uh, whether we need to have them at all? I mean, presumably, it's possible to be someone who doesn't have any resentments. Uh, I mean, you, you might want to know someone who has no resentments, but but it, it seems as well logically possible that there should be a person who, who was capable of forming beliefs about the world, even beliefs about agency, but just didn't lack, lack the capacity. And then the question, should I be that kind of person, uh, could arise. But I agree that it, it doesn't arise as a question about, about the will. It doesn't arise as a question about uh, whether I should feel uh, the way that I do. Uh, it's, it's considered to the blame that it's responsive to uh, the, the reactive attitude, that it's responsive to reasons of a certain sort. But still, the issue arises, you know, do I want to be a person that's structured in that way? And if it turns out that there are ways of turning oneself into a person who is, has fewer or no resentments, then the question whether you should do that arises. And all I'm saying is that that's one of the things. At that point, you have a bunch of options. And insisting that this is the way we are doesn't seem to me, that is insisting on human nature, doesn't, doesn't seem to be one of them. I have a question about this idea that um, learning a knowledge fact can show my moral ideas to be unfulfilled. Uh, so I can understand that the learning something about Mary uh, can make me revise my opinion that Mary uh, is blameworthy for hitting me. But I'm having a harder time understand how a moral fact about her psychology, say, or what caused her to do what she did, could ever change my moral principle. A psychological fact. Uh, sorry, a psychological fact. Uh, could ever change my moral principle that um, she's blameworthy only if the action is under her control. So, well, the types of cases you mentioned, I mean, it's uncontroversial that if I have a moral principle that says blameworthy only if under her control, and the control is spelled out certain factual conditions, and you show that the factual conditions don't hold, I find it strange to say that that shows my moral view is incoherent. It does show that I have to make one change my judgment, but I, I don't about her worthiness, but it doesn't make me change any of my moral principles. I agree with that analysis of that case. But uh, but I was thinking another and so the case where I was supposing that it was possible for a psychological discovery to make you consider abandoning a moment to claim is the case where you abandon the claim that uh, people are blameworthy only if they think are under their control, because you're persuaded by some of the people whose work was discussed this morning, uh, that uh, much, much less of the ordinary actions of human beings are, are under their control uh, than, than you know, was you normally supposed. Now, of course, the problem I'm raising here doesn't arise if you think that that's impossible, that you should be persuaded not by that particular claim, but by a claim of that form. That was meant to be an instance of a case where some people, at least, have been persuaded by a discovery about how uh, human uh, agency works, that um, they should abandon, rather than abandoning, uh, rather than trying to turn themselves into creatures that they're blaming or, or feeling blame and not doing anything about it, that what they should do is go on having the feelings and the and the responses, but abandon the thought that these these uh, feelings and responses are made appropriate by 
the fact that the act is under the control of the, of the agent. Now, as I say, I wasn't arguing that I was persuaded that, that the empirical claim that is correct, but it is one that's been widely made, and, and, and since then, lots and lots of other people have done experiments, and they push back the time uh, which they can predict uh, people's uh, actions to you know, sort of seven seconds before they appear to be conscious of, of having made any decision. So I, I share much of the skepticism about how the interpretation of data. I was supposing that someone was persuaded by those data uh, that lots of things that look like acts under control aren't acts under control, and, and responded not by abandoning, not or seeking to change their reactive attitudes, but by saying, let's go on with them, let's just abandon this claim about what's required in order to. But the, and so I said that one thing I said. The other thing I said was that you shouldn't go the other way around. You shouldn't, you shouldn't say, well, that can't be a piece of true psychology because if it were, we couldn't blame people. Right? And I, I don't think that's a... I, I just announced that I didn't think... I didn't make an argument. Uh, that was a, that was a principle. The principles are just things you announce. Uh, so, but if, if you think there are no examples of this, then you don't have the issue... You need to worry about this. You can have tea and go up. Can you follow up? Uh, yeah, well, my, my second question was just on this point. So, so, uh, so basically the argument, and I, I'll make it even more dramatic terms, is, is that you know, uh, someone is responsible only if they're in control of their actions. No one is in control of their actions. Uh, so no one is responsible for, for their actions. Uh, now, so it's, it's not... I'm not sure if you disagree with it, but it seems like surely it's not just that you learn this this empirical belief that leads you to give up the principle. It's also because you want to hold on to the fact that, say, Bashir al-Assad is responsible for his actions. So, so in fact, you have this moral belief on on the other side as well, and you give up the other moral belief in part because you hold on to one moral belief and and the empirical belief. So, uh, so I wasn't sure if you. Agreed or disagreed with that, but it says that the empirical inference by itself, even in that idealized case, wouldn't lead us to revise the, the principle that we, we held up to, but only together with our belief that some people are responsible. So the thought was sometimes an empirical claim of this sort requires us to, require to, to, in order to maintain the coherence of our sort of normal system, to adjust something. Yes, right. We can't, the imp says, you can't say, oh, well, I don't like the psychology, so I'm going to keep the normal system and reject yes. it. Right. And, you, and you agree with that. But um, it's true that it isn't, because coherence is this sort of uh, holistic uh, yeah. property, it's true that you're free, there's lots of uh, free play uh, in, in where you look uh, for uh, possible. All I was saying is that one possible form of alteration is to abandon the thought that I, the one about. Uh, um, blameworthiness requiring control. You could just abandon that thought. That seems to be one of the options. Very quickly now, what, what would you say to a, a kind of a moral who says, well, I'm really confident about this moral principle. I'm really confident about this particular moral judgment. Uh, looks like this empirical belief here is incompatible. But I'm not as confident of that. You know, I have all this data, but, but still. Uh, so if, if someone like that, they, they have more credence in the moral beliefs than that. Uh, the imp or pim says you still you have to that sacrosanct empirical but you can lower your credence uh, if even if it conflicts with the moral but yeah. but if you said there's kind of more it says well I have more credence in these beliefs, these moral ones than the empirical ones. So I'm just gonna lower my credence in the empirical belief. Like 
What exactly is wrong with that? Well, uh, I didn't say. Yes, but <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and if you don't find the principle, I mean, I would be interested in a convincing demonstration. I don't. I mean, the particular case you gave didn't strike me as, as one where I would be inclined to abandon it. But, uh, but I would actually be very interested if. Because I, because that would be a really interest. Actually, I think it would be a really interesting claim or discovery. I, I think Impis Bori, uh, if it's false, that's really interesting. Um, but I'm not inclined to think it is. Just, uh, I mean, but a lot of a lot of um, what's at stake here depends upon issues that I tried to acknowledge at the start are very obscure. Uh, whether the, whether the notion of credence applies in this precise way to normative beliefs at all strikes me. As unclear, uh, um, because as I said, the, the the way we ascribe credences in the standard model assumes a particular uh, functional role for beliefs that normative beliefs seem not to exemplify. Right, and and it's, and nobody I'm aware of has suggested another way of doing the measurement that would give us uh, credences. So, um, not even Simon Blackburn, who's in the business of doing such things. Um, so, but but I I, I agree that uh, I didn't. I, it was clear I did not make an argument for it, and it just struck me as when I was thinking about how to <laughs> juggle all this stuff. It struck me that there was at least one uh, principle. I will say that in a sort of longer version of this, which I cut down, I, I, there are other <coughs> principles of that shape. I think, for example, I am inclined to think, but this is not something that I mean. It's too much stuff to put into an answer to this question, but uh, I, I think there may be an analogous principle, uh, for example, about the relationship between honor and morality. That is to say, you should never give up a uh, moral claim because of an honor claim. The thing should always go the other way. So I, I think there may be interesting coherence rules like this about how you make coherence work. And that's actually what got me interested in the first place. But, um, but I completely agree that I didn't make an argument for it. And if, if it strikes you as, especially if you can think of a case where that would be the more plausible thing to do, I'd be very glad to have it because I think that, that would be very interesting. Good. Suppose I grant you the intuition. Still, the the the, uh, the fact is that, that what we're giving up there is really 
uh, what we're making there is comparative judgments about not about morality and facts, but about the reliability of. I mean, the only way to make that adjustment is not to believe Sarah, but then you don't believe the psychological claim uh, because you don't believe the informant, not because you think that. The, you know, so it's not that you have independent grounds for giving up the uh, psychological claim. You're just giving you're just uh, your face and source choices, and those source choices. You're resolving in a particular way. Well, uh, Sarah's supposed to be sufficiently reliable that if we can just pump up our work, it's less than the case. So that if she just said it, then that's why she could Right. So if I just have Sarah testing the magical reading. Yes. I mean, we can move the other way. So start off believing what Sarah says, then I can fall and throw that two more things, and I reject myself all the Right. Yes. I mean, I suppose what I think is that uh, it is about what to do. I mean, it doesn't say anything about testimony and about how you should uh, trade off sources, and I, I haven't thought about how to adjust that. I was imagining that, that, what you, that the reason you believe the psychological claim was that some evidence, <laughs> you were as if shown some evidence for it, not it wasn't just announced by somebody. Um, and as I say, in those cases where these things are just announced, um, there are all the problems about testimony and, and how we should rationally respond to testimony, which sort of cloud my capacity to enthusiastically endorse this as a, as a, as a, as a kind of example. And we can also make a very good point So just imagine that my moral memory is correct. Yes. So my moral memory is correct. Right around that time. But my memory is a psychological fact. I remember nothing wrong with us because of the pain of what they're doing. Good. I mean, what this suggests is that the principle needs sort of some form of qualification to um, uh, <laughs> focus on uh, uh, um, the features of the evidential situation that don't have to do with the source, memory, testimony, or whatever, uh, and that once you've sort of corrected for those, then it should be right. But I agree that that does suggest something that sort is in order. Get a follow-up over here? Yeah, that's what I'm going to miss say, but sorry, you framed it in terms of Bob making two moral claims, because moral claims imply a factual claim about what is going on, don't they? So it's not a case that there's a moral claim to simply to be from the psychological claim. There is a, a factual content implied by moral claims. Okay. Yeah. That's a quicker way of responding. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, I, so I, I think it's false, but maybe not in an important way. So uh, this is somewhat similar. So um, if I had the moral, the normative belief that uh, Benjamin Libet is an extremely dishonest man, uh, that might be giving reason to doubt some psychology, especially if I also believe the same as co-authors. Uh, right. Right. Um, so so this is this this relates to. I mean, my, I'm inclined to think that the issue is about. Sort of stating the principle in a way that ignores that, that abstracts from questions about source uh, reliability, but and maybe I that the issue there is a thick moral concept. That I think uh, so thick moral concept. So um, if you've got thin concepts involved, uh, something like thin nature, where you get thick concepts involved, they've got descriptive limitations, um, and that could be uh, quite problematic. So dishonesty, sorry, is a thick, yes. thick concept. Yes, right. So, but then you have to sort of abstract the uh, 
uh, if you can, some people think you can't, the, uh, the descriptive component and separate out those questions. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, take a question from Leanne. Is there anyone else I've been missing, though, before I take a question? So it depends on what your reading is of, of the meta-ethical claim. And, but I think either way it's okay. That is, if it has the normative consequences, then it applies. If it doesn't, yeah. okay. it doesn't. I'll have to ask you about that later on. <laughs> but just the actual question that I had was about virtue ethics. So oh. you mentioned um, that a virtuous person or a virtuous priest might be someone who takes himself out of situations that could lead to... Um, and I was, I've been curious about this for a while, which is, um, is there 
is there a point at which the virtuous person cultivates habits to be virtuous is no longer virtuous because in the moment they are not making an online decision. So say Pat Churchland is typically cranky, um, but every time she comes home, Paul gives her a glass of Chardonnay. So, and, and she's told him to do that. So she made the decision early on, but then every subsequent instance was not coming out of her own character, so to speak. Similarly, a charitable person could decide to do direct deposits into their charity of choice, but do they get credit for every subsequent donation, even though it was, you know, not of their choosing, but it was at their original instance? So I'm just curious about those kinds of cases in virtue ethics. You'd have to ask a virtue ethicist <laughs> uh, what they want to say about that. I mean, I think that in general, virtue ethicists think that, um, uh, as I said, that, that uh, um, your life is a or ipso better if you're virtuous. Uh, they probably have different views about the question. Well, don't, don't they think they just help themselves to Aristotle's distinction between contents and yeah. full virtue? Say, well, I don't know that well, it's better. So your person is your man. Shaping the world so as not to elicit the bad behavior is one of the things that, a, that, that that's partly constitutive of the virtue, right? right. So even though the subsequent virtuous behavior is elicited by the situation, right? Still, it's it's like the, the priest who doesn't take pretty girls out to dinner uh, with Chardonnay. Uh, <laughs> um, he's he's that's a reflection of his so understanding of justice. What? So most need to use Not to use yes. But but the point is that, that, that uh, I mean in this complex in the in this view, um, as it were, part of what a chaste person does is manage the context in which they might not be chased. Uh, and that's uh, yeah. And that, that's what I was suggesting about that particular case. No, I don't think it's a general habit of hers to <laughs> arrange for Chardonnays after bed faculty meetings, but, um, but that, that was re it's a reflection of her desire to be uh, meritorious, uh, that she uh, responds in that way in that situation, knowing that the, the bare will to be meritorious by itself isn't going to do it. And, and I think that's, that's an important insight about, about these things. 
So, um, actually, I have a question myself. I, and it's a slightly different part of the talk. Okay. So you, um, you were talking about one way to achieve coherence when we have a clash between our moral commitments and psychological facts about ourselves is to change the psychological facts, to change our situation or even change something more biological perhaps about ourselves. I guess I'm wondering who is the, who is the we, who is the ourselves? Um, the quote from Nietzsche, it seems like a very individualistic, almost aesthetic choice. I don't like some psychological fact about myself that's incoherent with some of the parts of my value system, I'm going to change myself. But a lot of the kinds of things I think you're talking about are you know, technologies beyond the, beyond the reach of one person, or social settings which are beyond the control of one person. They would require a society, they would require mm -hmm. a state. So I'm, I'm just wondering, do you, how, how do you think, um, think practically about what it would mean to change our psychology in response to our moral commitments? Uh, do you see a, a big difference, a principal difference in how to articulate the difference between a person making that choice for themselves and the kinds of choices that have to be made at the societal level? Well, uh, it's a great question. The, um, uh, so I started with a resolutely individualist perspective. The, the, the challenge was to assign rational credences and that's something you do on your own. I mean, other people may have input, but the, but the, the project there is an individualist project. But once you so one way of thinking about it is uh, you, you use those sorts of thoughts to decide questions like how should I, what are the options that I'd like to have, including the as it were technological options, and then you have to engage in social life in order to uh, see whether you can arrange for people to shape the social world in the ways that would suit you, and that involves you know the normal things, politics, uh, uh, social movements, things <coughs> that change the world. Um, you could try a different approach that was intrinsically and from the start a social approach, right? Which is maybe what you're suggesting. Uh, and I didn't say anything about that. I mean, I, I, and I haven't thought about it very much. I think it's a good idea because in general, um, it seems to me that in thinking about morality, we're thinking about, as it were, something we're doing together. It's not, it's not that each of us as well as a moral view, and then we negotiate. Uh, part of shaping a moral view involves, as it were, negotiation. So, I, I guess I'm wondering in particular about one problem, which is that you know, if you have one person, it, it can be hard enough getting your own moral beliefs to compare with one another. You, you're unsettled on certain questions. But if, if the sorts of choices that have to be made have to be made at a social level, then there's real trouble. There's intractable moral disagreement. So um, I guess I'm wondering that there's a situation we could face where the kinds of changes that would be needed to make one set of moral beliefs coherent is technologically possible, but other members of the society who would be affected by those changes don't agree with the same yes. moral commitments, yes. um, and therefore we'd, we'd be, I mean, are we just stuck at that point? Well, it depends. I mean, there's a sort of old set of answers here, right, which go back to Mill, distinguishing among the different ways in which people might be affected and which ways one ought to take account of and which one ought not to. So um, uh, if the way in which they're affected is they don't like the life that I would have, uh, we might think on sort of general liberal grounds that that ought to be given no weight. But if the way in which they're affected is that their options are shifted in ways that they are entitled to care about, then, then there's a reasonable you know, role for politics, negotiation, compromise, whatever it is that gets you there. I mean, the, the sorts of things, one way in which we actually solve these sorts of problems 
is by uh, what Mill called experiments of living. That is, we have different ways of doing things. In some places, people were solve continents problems in part by wearing burqas. In other places, they solve them by having serious penalties for rape. Right? I mean, and, and there's everything in between. So, um, and and you know, one thought you might have about the virtue of having different options is precisely that it allows people to find. I mean. I'm not sure that I think the burger option is one of the ones that I'm particularly enthusiastic about. But, um, but um, the, yeah, one thought you might have is that the, the, the one solution is that uh, there are, uh, if what we're doing here is seeking coherence, and in order to live the coherence, we have to do things with other people and then we may just have to try and organize the world in ways that mean that people whose views can be made practically coherent with one another get to be res relatively socially, um, so that's it, we're isolated from people who have other ways of doing the balance. Um, but as I say, I was trying to focus here just on questions about trying to seek first person coherence, but I, I, these are important and difficult questions, and certainly just as a matter of fact, I think it's very hard, if you look at the sort of recent moral history of the species, it's very hard to think of a case where a big change of that sort occurred that didn't involve massive movements and social activity and collective action. Mm -hmm. um, so. Any questions? Dan? Um, so, uh, partly by way of just making sure I, I understand the, uh, the position. Um, suggest a way in which in uh, uh, the subjective well-being literature in psychology, um, the kind of mistakes are pushing back against, um, I think, maybe pervasive. Um, so in, uh, uh, so one of the, uh, that, uh, one of the uh, major debates, to take an example, is um, between, in regards, uh, if you want, insofar as you want to promote a happier society, you should or should not prioritize economic growth in policy. And, uh, and then, uh, so researchers will look at the observed correlations, which seem to change daily, but, uh, and, um, and uh, depending on what the results show, they say, well, we should or we should not uh, prioritize economic growth, at least as a matter of happiness. And one of the things, as far as I can tell, most nobody looks at is, uh, is, the, is the possibility that the correlation between subjective well-being and, say, household income are themselves something that we could change. So there's no fixed correlation between money and happiness, presumably, um, and, and for many other variables as well. And, but people tend to kind of reify these, uh, correlate these results, and neglect the possibility, well, we might want to change the reality so that, for instance, either decoupling money and happiness, or say, in certain poor areas, maybe we actually want to increase the relationship between money and happiness, depending on uh, our priorities. Right. I mean, I don't know that, uh, I, I agree with what you said. Uh, the, the challenge once you've raised the possibility is to figure out what lines of research would enable you to bring about those changes. Clearly, one of the ways in which 
happiness and money might be connected might be by way of people's normative thoughts. It might be by way of what they think about uh, their theories about what a good life is. And so one way to decouple them would be to engage in, in discourse, right? Uh, or to couple them in different ways. Uh, but, we, but I don't know that we know very much about how much of that you can actually do and how it, how it gets done. Uh, but yeah, in principle, uh, one of the areas of exploration, once you've sort of identified the correlation, is precisely, well, that's my original question. Do, do we take it just as a fact, just as a given, or do we think about ways in which uh, we can uh, connect things differently? And in general, what psychology teaches us is not that they have to, or, or social science in general teaches us, is not that things have to be correlated in the way they are, but that they are. And then we need to, a good social science gives you an understanding of why they're correlated in those ways, which at least potentially gives you the capacity to uh, make different correlations. But we don't, I don't think a lot of research is devoted to these questions on the whole, perhaps for the reason you said that people tend to just investigate the correlation and then think it's obvious what you should do once you notice the correlation, which is, uh, you know, uh, change the thing that we think we know how to change to some extent, uh, which in that case is presumably the income distribution. Though I don't know that we know as much as we would like to about how it affects income distributions actually. Is that a follow-up question? Oh, no, sorry. Okay. Yeah, to press you again on famous pin. Uh, <laughs> so what I say is similar to something in Hadley said. I think I, I get persuaded that we need to accept it. So okay. if, let, let's take it in the starkest form. So suppose you have the belief to, to take Leanne's example that torture inference of fun is wrong. Or even the belief that you know that that's wrong. And some empirical claim E. And the belief that these are inconsistent. So I think perfectly acceptable to say that I believe, my belief that the torturing for inference of funding is I, I know it with far greater certainty than any of the other uh, premises, so I, I need to reject one. Uh, it's true in most cases, it's the inconsistency premise that we're going to investigate. But we don't know a priori that's always going to be the case. So there will be cases where we're going to reject empirical claim E, and that seems now you could add PIMP as a premise, but that you know it applies to PIMP as well. I'm much more confident that culture is for infants or funny wrong that PIMP is right. So that wouldn't help in some argument. So just I mean there's a lot to say, but just your observation. One is that there are cases where people argue in ways that go against PIMP. So take the moral argument for God's existence. It's quite similar. Okay. Some moral facts are true, I know that culture in fun is true. Uh, if God didn't exist, that wouldn't be the case to God exists. And a lot of people like him like the theory of evolution. They think maybe wrongly that it's incompatible with certain which has the implication that basic core moral beliefs are, are, are false, therefore we should project the theory of evolution. Now there are lots of problems with that particular argument, but it doesn't seem on the face of it that we can rule it out a priori is unreasonable. Uh, so let me just a lot of points here. Um, one is that I think the strength of PIM, the prima facie strength, is that when you look at some particular empirical fact versus some particular moral fact, 
It's very hard to reject bacterial factors. To reject it, you need, you know, how are you going to reject and feed it into your system of belief? You know, stuff. The evidence goes wrong, and it's, it starts to spread, and you know, the whole scientific method suddenly. Uh, and that seems one reason why we don't want to do it at that level. Mm -hmm. We may want to do it at some much broader level. I think Thomas Nagel is, is kind of skeptical about the fear of evolution. I think there's a book coming out. That, so if, you, if you're willing to go at a quite general level, rather than adjusting our particular, so you know, that, that scientist must have been blind when he was uh, observing that microscope, that, that's hard to, you know, that doesn't make sense. But you, you would need to go adjust your way of belief at some quite general level. But if you're willing, I mean, if you really thought there was that tension, it, again, it doesn't seem reasonable, unreasonable, so long as it's in tension with your you know, quite central core beliefs. So, to two hundred points, if you don't like. Uh, one, uh, one response. Gary, we've only got about five or seven minutes total left. Okay, so, so the last one. Uh, I think it goes to what Andrew was saying, and I think that's maybe compatible with him that what you seem to suggest is we will always have some other normative beliefs we can revise that would mediate tension while keeping the core ones. So you might uh, weaken people or state it a bit more precisely in some way. Uh, there might be some unrevivable model but there will always be some other normative belief that will be able to revise and prevent tension. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would prevent the kind of tension I was talking about. It's just not clear that that's always true. And I'm not sure how you can demonstrate up priority. For every core moral beliefs about torture and infinite fund, there will always be some other general kind of more abstract principle that if we could reject that, we'll, we'll be able to keep the empirical, empirical one. Um, so only for just, just two observations. One is, uh, this principle is about psychology and ethics, not about uh, stuff in general. Well, I don't have, I, uh, metaphysics, I don't have the view in relation to metaphysics, or, I mean, I don't, I didn't make it in relation to metaphysics or theology, so I, I don't, I don't know what I think about that. But, um, I mean, because God has sort of, if God were to exist, he would have certain moral properties, and so it might well be that it doesn't apply in that case. Um, so one point, um, but um, you know what I think. Uh, as I said, I didn't make an argument for it, and uh, and what would be interesting, what what would sort of as it were shift my view would be a case where it looked like, uh, uh, and and I don't know of any example uh, like that, and so I don't have. I agree. I'm, I don't have any a priori argument. I don't have any argument at all, actually. Uh, this is right. It struck me as a as a constraint on the ways in which we may we seek coherence. Um, um, if so, I but if somebody, I, I'm you know, I'm open to the possibility that someone could uh, provide a case. I'm not sure what I think about this, the second thing you said. Uh, I mean, because, look, in order to get this right, precise, you need a characterization of normative. You need to say what the normative beliefs are, what normative claims are. Um, and, but whatever it can be given that, it will be a relatively rich body of stuff. And I would say I would be inclined to think that there's almost always going to be uh, options for um, revision um, 
away from these core things because, because just because the range of attributes is so rich and complicated. So there, I don't find it. I mean, I, I don't have an error argument that it's going to be true, but it seems to be plausible that it would be generally the case that there are other things you can abandon. Um, yeah. It's a follow-up question. Yeah, I was I'm inclined to think that, that um, the principle that is true, but I wonder if you expressed yourself very slightly in the interest of kind of putting the contrast between the belief on the one hand that discovery and the other, in the sense that a discovery insofar as it's necessarily a fact, it would of course want to keep the fact that it is indeed a fact. Uh, in one way, the important point is, so this also place that pretty much more interesting. Uh, what status we give to the results of certain kinds of invariables that logically apply? Do we regard them as discoveries or not? And the sorts of questions that throws up seem to be interpretative ones. Do these results in neuroscience prove determinism, for example, or is that a huge leap of the source? It's not so much that we've discovered that determinism is true, rather that a certain sense of regularity we find in experimental results. So the question is, have we fit that friend with the kind of the rest of our second uh, um, well, uh, it's true that um, the principle might gain some illicit plausibility from the thought that what it's really saying is you shouldn't abandon the truth in order to <laughs> in order to uh, maintain coherence. Uh, that, that's, but I hope it doesn't. Uh, I hope it isn't. Uh, it isn't that. Um, in general, though, and it was meant to be limited, as I said, to psychology. It was meant to be a suggestion about how we actually think about these things uh, when we're faced with these sorts of choices. Um, uh, in general, I mean, there isn't much work in... in um, psychologists write books in which they make arguments about determinism. But uh, claims about determinism are not in psychology are not usually the subject of experimental investigation. There are fields where determinism, the question of determinism, is a central object of scientific inquiry, but they tend to be in physics, uh, where simply characterizing determinism turns out to be quite hard uh, in a precise way, and then figuring out whether, as people often suppose, the quantum theory is inconsistent with determinism turns out to be harder than people had thought. But I don't know, I don't think of, as I say, psychologists express themselves on the question of uh, uh, psychological determinism, as do priests and rabbis and bus drivers. But uh, it's not really a central, I wouldn't have thought of it as a central topic, the general question of determinism, I wouldn't have thought of it as a central topic of psychological investigation. What is investigation is whether particular things are caused in particular ways. We have time for one short question, if there's any other short questions left. Short question. Um, do we need to think about uh, psychological discovery or psychological evidence at all in your talk? Because take the case that we uh, discussed, um, I believe Mary uh, blameworthy for hitting me. I believe she was the only uh, she was under her control. Now, to get me to revise that belief, those normative beliefs. I don't need any psychological facts. I might need only the following. You say, suppose that you learned, you came to believe that what Mary did was not what we don't need any evidence. 
suppose this were true, would you still endorse the principle, or are you so convinced that in this case she's blameworthy, which shows that you have to revise the principle? Mm -hmm. That's what philosophers do all the time, yes. with each other. So what's the role of the idea of evidence here at all? Well, um, as I said, the, 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 uh, the right case to think about is the case where uh, what claims to be shown isn't uh, uh, about Mary in particular, but it's the case where uh, it, it's supposed to have been shown that a vast swathe of uh, our uh, behavior, which we thought of as under our control, <laughs> isn't. Um, you can certainly ask people what they would say, uh, what they would think, if it turned out to be the case that that was so. I agree. And indeed, that's what you have to think about if somebody suggests that it is so. <laughs> so, so but you wouldn't feel any pressure, I don't think, to adjust your views unless you thought it might be so. Why should I adjust my views about the relations among these uh, elements of my moral thinking uh, in the light of, of the bare possibility that some assumption of mine about agency, uh, an assumption that I currently have no doubt about, um, is incorrect? So. Um, it's true that in order to think through the consequences, I mean, this is a general point about these kinds of sort of um, um, empirical considerations and thinking about these normal questions. Uh, at some point, you have to sit in the armchair, I grant you. At some point, you have to decide what, how to resolve all this stuff. And the conditional questions, the questions about what you should believe if those questions are where the, the if P is some psychological thing, uh, those questions are questions you have to be able to answer independently of whether or not P, because if you, that, that P wouldn't as well engage with your thought unless that was so. So I agree with that. Uh, but still, the pressure to think about it and the pressure to take seriously the possibility that you might revise your views does derive from, I mean, maybe I should have given an example because the results that lead people to say this are after all rather surprising. The fact that you can tell seven seconds, if you ask somebody to you know, pick between the left and the right button, the fact that you can tell seven seconds before they, you, you can predict uh, seven seconds before they announce that they've made a decision, which one they're going, which way they're going to go, that's surprising. I mean, it's not what I thought uh, before these results were announced. I don't know if I believe them, but my point is, suppose they were correct, then I would feel pressure to think about my views in a way that was uh, more serious than someone saying to me, well, it's logically possible that uh, it should be the case that someone should uh, be able to predict whether you're going to go left or right seven seconds before you are aware of having made a decision. So, in that sense, as I said, you're right that the, uh, the sort of conditionals, the connections among the parts, those are, uh, those are the things that we're supposed to be trained to do in the track. I think about we'll have to wrap it up. Thanks once again Thank for you. a fascinating talk.